0: Hello and welcome to colo This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kapenstein, director of the Columbus Community Colo, And it's a very big privilege that we get to welcome you to our next episode featuring Jason Dove Greenblatt. I'm here with my friend and colleague, uh, Howie Bagelman and uh, Howie, what do you uh, what do you what are you looking to cover today? As we uh, we get to talk to one of the most influential Orthodox Jews in the country, what are you looking forward to?
1: I'm excited to really hear um, about how he uh, you know sort of the lessons he learned from his time in the administration and the Abraham Accords and all the stuff he worked on. I'm kind of curious to see what what, what his take is on all that and what what it looks like going forward.
0: Yeah, the thing that probably strikes most people the most, definitely myself, and I would presume many more, he didn't have a background in foreign policy. I mean, I'm sure he read things like every one of us did, but then he came in and he literally did unprecedented, uh, you know, arrangements and he was so successful at that. I'm curious to know what that process looked like.
1: Yeah, he definitely had an untraditional background and he was able to be very successful. So kind of curious to see how he made that happen.
0: The, the thing that I'm going to be really listening to is, is there anything that's relevant to, like, the simple folks? Like, you know, you and me, we're not meeting with the president. Maybe one day you will, but I'm probably not. <laughs> and is there any lessons? Is there any overlap? Are, there, are the guiding principles the same no matter where you are? Or is it something that's just respective to that conversation? I'm curious to know if there's anything practical for uh, for simple folks like us. <laughs> You
1: know, I'm curious to see if there's some broad-based, you know, lesson we can learn.
0: Yeah. So, without further ado, let's uh, let's bring on Jason. Jason Dove Greenblatt was the executive vice president and chief legal officer to President Donald Trump and the Trump Organization and his advisor on Israel. In January 2017, he was appointed as an assistant to the president and special representative for international negotiations by President Trump. He is also the host of the Diplomat podcast on Newsweek and author of an upcoming book about President Trump, Israel, and the Abraham Accords entitled In the Path of Abraham. Jason, thank you so much for joining Colote. So glad
2: to be with you today. Thank you for having me as a guest.
0: So I want to start off just asking you a little bit about your background. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your upbringing, mentors, education, a little bit of, um, you know, how you became who you are?
2: Sure. Grew up in Queens, standard Jewish childhood in the 70s, 80s. Uh, went to elementary school in Queens, then went to Yeshiva University High School, Yeshiva University, NYU Law School. Uh, my family and I now live in Teaneck, New Jersey. I have an amazing, incredible wife, six amazing kids, two of them recently got married, so now I have uh, eight kids, right? And, um, you know, mentors are hard because throughout your life, there are just so many people who have a tremendous influence on you, teachers, rabbis. Um, I would say my biggest partner in life are really my wife and my kids. And as you could imagine, um, it was a difficult decision when president Trump asked me, do I want to join him at the white house? Because what that meant for us, since I wasn't able to uproot my entire family was, can I live apart from my wife and kids for an unknown period of time? Right. We thought two years it ended up being three years. And then I finally did come home, but the support and advice and um, just, Tremendous chizuk that I got from them. I would say they have to be my biggest source of strength, and the people that I learn most from, and the people who keep me grounded.
0: Wow, that's that's beautiful, family. You know, we just had yesterday on uh, we recorded with David Heller from Cleveland, and we were talking about time management, and you know, you got your business, you got your Judaism, and you got family, and like how do you juggle it all? And he said you got to remember some things could fall and bounce up you know it's like a ball but the family one is crystal and if it falls it might shatter so sounds like you know your family is something that you treasure so so much uh do, do you talk with them um about what's going on and you like their input i'm sure some things you could discuss some things you can't how do they play a role other than just inspiration
2: i think they play a really strong role so of course during the white house there was a limit to what i could discuss with them obviously i couldn't discuss classified or sensitive information but there's no question that I asked them their thoughts as I would ask lots of people about the file that we were handling. Um, they met many of the important leaders, obviously they knew president Trump from when they were little children. They got to spend time with Bibi Netanyahu, vice president Pence, King Abdullah of Jordan, so many people throughout the middle East, but it was really important for me to um, have them interact. So as an example, after the Palestinian Authority cut us off, in uh, they cut us off in December of 2017 because of President Trump's bold, courageous decision to recognize the capital of Israel as Jerusalem. It always was, it always will be. In January, I was accompanying Vice President Pence to Jerusalem, or I'll say Jerusalem, comma Israel, uh, for a trip. And I met with young Palestinians, even though it wasn't an official visit because technically— everyone was told not to talk to us. They were young, dynamic, really amazing young Palestinians. It was a tough conversation that we had, obviously, about Jerusalem and the eventual moving of the embassy, but it was really a terrific experience. And uh, it was a Friday afternoon, let's say around 1, 2 p.m. Jerusalem time. And I said, you know what, why don't you come over to the apartment that we rented uh, for Shabbat dinner? They said yes. I called my wife and I said, honey, uh, we're having some guests. She's used to that, by the way. We've had some, you know, people from the White House, uh, you know, big business leaders, diplomats. A last-minute call on a Friday afternoon was normal for her, but it was uh, her vacation. I was there for work. She was there for vacation with the kids. She bought food from the Shook, and uh, everything, of course, was closed by the time I called her. She said, I don't have food for five people, and I can't start cooking now because there's nothing open. So don't worry about it, we'll manage, we'll eat less, they'll eat. So we had this incredible dinner. My kids were a little bit nervous, but the five young Palestinians came into this apartment, and we probably had what was a three, four-hour Shabbat dinner. Um, There were parts of the conversation that were hard for everybody, right, for them, for us. But I think my kids learned a tremendous amount. I think this group of Palestinians learned a tremendous amount, and that's how relationships get built, and that's eventually – how peace can be built because leaders of course can create the legal documents that create peace, but without the warmth and relationships, it's very hard to sustain a worthwhile peace for everybody. So they've been a tremendous inspiration for me.
0: Wow. That's, that's incredible. And to see that they could follow your lead is also even more, you know, who knows what, what else they could be doing 10 years, 20 years, 30 years if, if, when you're setting that tone, um, beautiful leadership. So I want to ask you, Um, Prior to 2017, you were executive vice president and chief legal officer to the Trump organization. Um, You know, you're working in a big company, corporation, and you are a Torah observant Orthodox Jew. Were there any challenges of being who you are and sticking to your beliefs in Judaism while working in such a high profile occupation?
2: Uh, I would say I was extraordinarily lucky even before president Trump, you know, the fir- the law firms I had worked at were very supportive of me being an observant Jew. Um, it was a Mincha in the firm that I was at Mincha in the winter um, in the firm that I started out Fried Frank. When I got to Trump, um, I have to give him and his family just tremendous credit because I was running deals, really big deals that normally got run out of big firms. And when I had to disappear, to observe Shabbat or in some cases three we'll call them three-day Yom Tovim. They're really one day a uh, two day Yom Tovim and Shabbat. I was off the grid for three days straight and deals literally had a grind to a halt. But so I don't want to say it was without a challenge in the sense that I felt the pressure that I put on myself. But President Trump and his family were just really supportive. There was one instance I tell the story often because I think people have to understand where they terribly wrongly accused President Trump of being anti-Semitic, which is just, just so ridiculous that I was working on a massive deal once, and nobody was able to take over the deal for me, not because I'm smarter than anybody else, but I ran the deal. I knew all the details in my head at my fingertips. Nobody could come up to speed. We thought we'd close the deal before the Chagim. It just didn't happen. And I had to go into his office and tell him that the deal is going to stop for three days. And look, in the real estate and generally in the corporate world, you never want a deal to stop because anything can happen during the course of the time that it stops, right? So I was very nervous uh, telling him. And I looked up and he said, Jason, go home, go pray and be with your family. We'll pick it up after the holiday. That's really who he is to his core. Can I tell you that he was dancing me out the door with Yumta music? Of course not. But he was respectful, he understood it, he encouraged it, and that's what I faced. And I have to say, you know, the same was true at the White House, not only for my colleagues in the White House and the the administration generally, but even among the Arabs. um, We speak the same language. You know, just like us, they have observant Muslims or Christians, they have less observant Muslims, Christians, but they all understand the importance of religion in lifestyle, whether it's Kashrut, whether it's Shabbat and things like that. And without exception, I was treated with respect for being an observant Jew, including, by the way, the Palestinians. So at the beginning, when we joined the White House, they were sort of making fun of the uh, the three observant Jews, David Friedman, myself, and Jared. You know, what do you guys know by making peace? And I would argue on the contrary, it turned out to be a unifying factor, not a
0: dividing factor. That's incredible. That's beautiful. I love that. And you mentioned before your um, conversations about the embassy, and I want to just focus on that one more uh, for for another moment before we get to um, the Abraham Accords. Can you talk a little bit about the moving of the embassy and the consulate and everything that pertains to that? It was a bold thing that was promised. Um, I don't know how many we lost count how many times and never delivered. And then it finally was delivered. It was like hard to believe. Can you walk us through a little bit of that process?
2: Sure. And and let's there's really three discussions. There's the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. There's the moving of the embassy. And both of those were tied into the law that was on the U.S. books for decades. And you're right. All presidential candidates since then made the promise and only one, Donald Trump, kept the promise. And I don't want to blame those who didn't keep their promise. You know, there are certain things you say when you're running and there's certain things you do or don't do once you're in the office. And you realize sometimes Things are a bit more complicated. So I wasn't in the room for the prior candidates who didn't end up keeping their promise. But I can tell you, knowing what I heard from uh, the people who were telling President Trump what to do, or I should say what not to do, which is do not recognize Jerusalem because it's going to essentially cause a bloodbath. I mean, the advice that he got both within the government and outside the US government from leaders around the world, hearing that, I can understand why some leaders weren't courageous enough to do it. But he you know, he absorbed all this material, and he decided it just wasn't true. Now, whether it was true or not years ago, I don't know, right? I wasn't there. I, I, I have no way of evaluating whether it was true years ago. But I could tell you that he made a very courageous decision, recognized it. The speech I thought he gave was fantastic because it not only recognized reality and the connection of Judaism to Jerusalem, the important, significant history of Jerusalem to Jews, but he also left open the door. Uh, for peace with the Palestinians. Uh, they unfortunately, of course, ignored that. Um, but I think that the world reaction generally was nowhere near as uh, critical as, it, as uh, people made it out to be. Second aspect, of course, is moving the embassy. You know, that's part two. And uh, he did that. And, you know, David Friedman worked hard to get that done together with a lot of people from the U.S. government. And it took place in May. I was at that ceremony. It was just amazing to be there as a White House official Uh, amazing to be there as a Jew, and uh, they got that. uh, The third aspect, which has nothing to do with that particular law, was the closing of the consulate. The consulate historically was a, a mission, not an embassy, but a mission to the Palestinian people. But to have two U.S. missions in the same city is ludicrous. It's a total waste of money, total waste of U.S. taxpayer money. The Palestinians don't have a state the they replicated the office the same people the same services that were available to the palestinians were folded into the u.s embassy in jerusalem and that's the way it should be to reopen the consulate as the biden administration has promised but hopefully isn't going to do is it's a bad move it's bad for the u.s taxpayer it's bad for peace um it shows a lack of understanding really of what the conflict is all about so You know, on all fronts, I give President Trump tremendous credit for doing what he did. And um, I hope the Biden administration, who recognizes, you know, they're not going to change the rules of the game when it comes to Jerusalem or the embassy. I hope they don't pressure Israel into moving or reopening, I should say, the consulate.
0: Wow. So you're you're saying that you're not able to assess, uh, you know, prior to in previous administrations, whether, that, you know, the, the the reasons why the naysayers were saying what they were saying were true or not true, but President Trump um, didn't buy into it. Was there a time where you thought, oh boy, we, we may have overpromised these, th- you know, like we're learning a lot more things now than we did then. Was the change from, you know, pre-administration uh, to now looking and assessing it in real time, was there a big change or eh, always what you pretty much more or less what you thought it was?
2: No, I do think that whether it's from meetings with diplomats around the world, in particular from the region, intelligence reports, advice from people who worked on this file before, all of that was important to the process. We did need to hear from everybody, and some of it was eye-opening. You know, not everything is, as it seems, in the papers. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it takes a courageous leader like Trump who realized he made a promise and he wanted to keep the promise, but he also wanted to make sure to do it smartly. And that's why it took the better part of a year. You know, some people thought that he would do it on day one or day two. It took till he did sign one waiver in the middle of the year and people were critical of him. I don't think that criticism was fair. I thought that we were methodical. I thought he was methodical and wanted to understand the file before he actually took the step, but he took the step.
0: Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. Um, now let's get to the Abraham Accords. That was uh, definitely something historic. It's hard to know where we begin, but I, you know, so, so many people doubted that peace could ever be made. Um, we're dealing with, you know, the history, not just the current situation, the current challenges. We're talking about, a, we're talking about history of, of, of baggage, of things that the conflicts that date back, who knows how long. Um, what was it that made this thing happen?
2: So I would say it was three, four years, four years really of very hard relationship building, very hard talking of real facts, meaning, you know, at the beginning we would go into meetings and people would take out their note cards and just talk about the same things over and over again. What people call settlements, what I like to say are cities and towns or neighborhoods in Judea-Samaria, what, other what others call the West Bank, and what should definitely not be called um, occupied Palestinian territory. That's just not true. It's a false label. Um, people always blame that as the source of the conflict. It's not true. Is it a source of, uh, you know, something that has to be worked out? Is it a source of tension? Sure, I get that. But it is not the reason that the conflict exists, and people often use that reflexively. People talk about the so-called two-state solution, but they don't talk about what that actually means. What does it mean by way of Israel's security? I mean, we wouldn't ask any ally, let alone a friend and ally such as Israel, who's been attacked from the day that it was born, to uh, take a flyer, take a chance on their security. So when people talk about an independent Palestinian state, where as if Israel would just do what it did in Gaza and, you know, withdrew from Gaza and wanted to get in return— Rockets all the time, terror tunnels, um, people trying to breach the fence to attack Israelis. Why would Israel do that? And why would America ask Israel to do it? So we spent a lot of time re-educating essentially the world about the conflict. Much harder to do in Europe. In fact, I would say we probably were unsuccessful largely in Europe. They're very traditional thinkers. They think if they use these magic words, all of a sudden peace will break out. And I talk about this a lot in the book that I wrote. It's just not true. Whereas among the Arabs, generally speaking, they're pragmatic, they're practical, realistic. They understand the region. They understand that nobody would ask them, let's say Saudi Arabia, nobody would say, oh, you know, don't defend yourself against the Houthi terrorists in Yemen. Just take your chances. We wouldn't ask that of Saudi Arabia. So when you could relate to them that way, it makes a huge difference. And then eventually it also is a question of courage. Which of these leaders are courageous? Uh, the leader of the UAE, um, M, he's you know, affectionately known as MBZ, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed and the King of Bahrain and the King of Morocco. These guys deserve tremendous credit for being willing to lead that region into peace and prosperity. Uh, so, you know, lots of puzzle pieces had to be built. Eventually, the puzzle pieces had to be clicked together. And I think President Trump and the team just did an amazing job.
0: That's great. And I, I want to ask you one last question before uh, I turn it over to Howie. But you, you came into politics and into government, um, very similar to the president and not having that as your background. That's not where you spent 30 years of your career. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you knew a lot more than the average person, but still it's not something that you were, uh necessarily an expert in. So how did you come in and learn about all this in a relatively short amount of time and then be so successful? Can you walk us through a little bit of the learning process?
2: Sure. Well, the first key is, as you say, recognizing that there's a lot you need to learn. And I went in knowing that. Uh, I was very fortunate to have a lot of very smart, experienced colleagues in the State Department and the National Security Council who were very helpful in teaching me the file bringing me or bringing people into my office who've worked on the file before, obviously learning from the diplomats, especially in the region and the leaders in the region. You know, every one of those leaders from former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, President al-Sisi, King Abdullah of Jordan, all of them, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, as I mentioned before, they all have thoughts, uh, the leader of Qatar as well. The trick is to understand that they're all coming at it from their own angle. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? They all have their own national interests and reasons to say what they want to say. This is on the diplomats and the leaders. And on the the what people like to call experts, there really are no experts in this file, right? There's a lot of very strong opinions. And I would say that the so-called experts from before don't have the knowledge base that we actually developed over the four years of the trump administration in my case three years because we have current knowledge they have knowledge that's older so i don't want to dismiss them out of hand they're hard-working dedicated individuals important messages but what they say is not gospel what they say we have to recognize is their experience at a particular time when they handled the file needs to be taken into consideration but then you need to synthesize all of that and make decisions and that's what we did and The results are the Abraham Accords, which is just, you know, has changed the course of history for the time being in that region.
0: Right, for sure. You're saying that you came in with the assumption knowing that you don't know. The question is, how much do you not know? Where do you draw the line? It's easy to say, I'm going to learn what I don't know, but do you stop here? Do you stop there? Like, how? you know, where did you feel? Okay, now I got it. How did you get to that point?
2: So we spent the better part of year, or I did anyway, throughout 2017, the first year learning. After I, I'm not going to say we didn't draft. I, I spent a lot of time drafting a peace plan in 2017, but I was constantly changing it all the way through October of 2019 when I eventually left. There's no magic moment, right? Um, and I, I mentioned on a radio interview recently, we, I felt like we were playing 10 or 12-dimensional chess every single day because it's not just learning what we didn't know and what other people thought. But every week or two or three, there was something else going on. There was tension in the region. There were politics that got in the way. There were Israeli elections that got in the way. So it's not even enough to say when you learned enough. You also have to be um, dynamic and smart to be able to react to what's happening at any given moment.
0: Okay, great. Now I want to turn it over to Howie to ask you a little bit about the, the, the you know a little bit more about the UAE. Go ahead, Howie.
1: Thank you, and thank you, Jason, for joining us. Um, so you know, obviously, you've been talking a lot about you know obviously how it happened and 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 why it happened. But I think for me, it's has been interesting to watch in this last you know, year plus since then. A, Number one is, is the war and peace. And obviously, we had you know for many years you had Egypt and Jordan for much more. Uh, a, an important piece and a security piece, but much more of a, of a colder piece in some ways. And the, the Gulf, especially, you know, UAE, especially, I think, Bahrain and then Morocco to an extent is really this warm piece. And one of the things that I, that I see happening really is um, the, the business connections between, between the, the Gulf and Israel um, and, and Morocco and Israel in so many ways. And one of the things we do here in Ohio, Ohio Jewish communities, is try to connect Ohio and Israel um, you know, for research, for development, for business opportunities, and in my in my mind, so many of the areas where Ohio and Israel connect—be it aerospace and defense, be it cyber, be it agriculture, um, other other opportunities, advanced manufacturing—there's um, really, I think, you know, an amazing trilateral or quadrilateral opportunity here with with, with the Gulf to bring them in, them also into obviously Israel, but also into into America um, as investors and as business partners. Um, do you think, that, do you think that's, that, that's the case? And if so, sort of what's, what's a good way to make that that move?
2: So if it works for Israel, it should work for some of the countries in the region. Um, and the key word is partners, as you say. Investors, of course, there's, they're awash in money, but they don't just want to be an ATM dumping money elsewhere. They also want to rebuild their or build their economies in a different way than they have them today. And if you look, you know, each country has different visions. MBS, for example, in Saudi Arabia has a vision 2030. The UAE, uh, in particular Abu Dhabi and Dubai, have their own visions as well. Very exciting, very dynamic. So it needs to be a two-way street. Uh, Ohio should benefit. Those countries should benefit. If you could fold Israel into it, even better, right? Um, how to do it? I think you need to be in touch with the leadership there. Show what Ohio can do for them and what they can do for Ohio. And I, I would encourage exploring it. Uh, if, if this was a new idea and you were thinking about it, I, I think it would be harder. But you have uh, proof that it worked with Israel and both Israel and Ohio have benefited, so I think you should explore it.
1: That's great. And then I guess one quick follow up for you, um, again on the Abraham Accords. You know where you know obviously again it's been so exciting to see the the, the, the four countries so far. Um, and obviously you can have a crystal ball in some ways, but where do you think does does are there more that are coming in? And it, it, I mean we've seen beyond the region changes, even you know their countries are doing things, but that, that, that this probably has accelerated countries in Europe or elsewhere around South America, Asia, that that have become more friendly to Israel. But what about in the region itself? Are there more that are going to join the Abraham Accords or, or make similar normalization agreements?
2: So nobody does have that crystal ball. I mean, I like to refer to those countries, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Oman. I'm not so sure about Kuwait. But those three countries that I mentioned as the not yet signatories to the Abraham Accords, I don't want to say they're not going to sign. Obviously, we're a long way from Syria or Lebanon, if ever. And I think that we have to respect that they have their own concerns, their own national interests, their own worries. And I think um, if we do it in a way that um, shows them how we care and how we want to help them get through that, we'll be closer to getting that done. At the moment, though, what we have is a situation where the Biden administration is talking to Iran The region is very nervous about what that's going to end up being. I think we need to be listening to the region. Uh, You know, it's a little hard to tell. I don't want to criticize the Biden administration for not listening because it sounds like they are listening. You know, it's hard to know when you read what you read in the press, whether it's accurate or not. I've been on the other side of that. But um, I think until things with Iran are dealt with one way or the other, it's going to be hard for these countries to sign. But you never know. You don't know really what ends up clicking that last puzzle piece into place. There's definitely an interest and uh, we should do everything we can to encourage it.
1: I love that term. Not yet sanatory. That's amazing. I love it. Thank
0: you. Jason, you just mentioned something and it was, I'm going a little off script, but uh, if, if I may, you mentioned about yourself being on the other side and knowing that not everything which is reported is true. Um, Without getting into anything that's classified, can you share with us? Because all of us read, you know, or listen or watch the news and it's hard to, not always, but sometimes it's hard to decipher and discern what's true and what's not true. You, you've been on both sides. So can you help us know a little bit? You know, what are, is there a red flag? Like, okay, this must be off. Is there something that you're able to share with us that could, you know, open us up a little bit that we could be, you know, smarter listeners and watchers and taking things and not, you know, pass on and forward things, which are not correct.
2: It's a great question. And I wish people would talk about it more. Um, I guess, and this is not a knock against the news media, fake news. There is plenty of fake news and it comes from all sides, right? You have to understand the journalists. let's put aside the journalists who have a deep agenda and are manipulative. Like there's a class of journalists like that. Don't read them. There are many hardworking, dedicated journalists in every newspaper. New York Times, even though I don't generally agree with some of the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. Let's—I'm picking three that I don't. Um, you know, they have a different viewpoint of mine. I'm—I'm I'm more conservative, right? But there are plenty of hardworking journalists there who get great stories. But let's remember where they get, where they and Fox and everybody else are getting the stories from. There's the official word from the actual leader or the spokesperson or whoever it is that's going on the record. Well, that you can pretty much count on a lot of those times. Those statements are a little bit vanilla. And then there are people who give the reporters information off the record. Sometimes that information is good, but sometimes it's in order to get um, a good story about themselves out there. I once had a, a politician. I won't say which country I was from. It was not from America. who said to me, Jason, When you talk to the press, give them tidbits, give them secrets, because then they're going to write good things about you. And I was shocked. So a very high level politician, by the way, said, who plays that game? He said, oh, just about everybody. I said, well, you know what? I'm here to do my job, not to get a good story in the press. I'm not going to do that. So there are times when journalists are getting information, which may not even be true from people who have their own agenda. It's not, it's not the journalist's fault because it's the politician who's feeding them information. You have to realize that sometimes people feed information for that reason. Then there are people who leak. If there are people in a government, even the, you know, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, who don't like what the president is doing or what the secretary of state is doing or whoever it is that they want to talk about, they're going to give their own spin to it as well. So, unfortunately, you are when you read these stories, you're reading a combination of different people who've said different things, sometimes off the record. And you don't know that everything in there is true. It doesn't mean it isn't true, by the way. But sometimes you just have to uh, read with a very discerning eye, go to many different sources. I, for example, will read or go watch CNN and Fox because I want to try to get different data points to try to better understand where the truth lies, try to filter out completely the political jargon. And that happens on everybody's side, right? If people are talking, you know, you get a sense of when somebody's making a political point. Just let that go right in one ear and right out the other ear because it will not benefit you whatsoever and it will only maybe make you upset or angry or frustrated. Um, There's no great answer to what you're saying other than to be a super, super careful consumer of news. Um, Find the journalists that you trust and even they can make mistakes sometimes. And uh, it's important to read and listen and watch and, and, you know, have multiple sources, but you can never really fully tell what's real or not real.
0: Yeah. And I think so many people, you know, when they go and listen, watch or whatever the news they're walking in with so much bias and preconceived notion, it's almost like they're suffering from selective listening. Um, you, you mentioned finding the journalists that you trust. Are you comfortable sharing anyone that you highly recommend, not because of which, um, you know, what their policy or what, sorry, what they prefer as a policy or where they stand, but just because of their allegiance to reporting the facts and not, you know, jumping with the spin or the opinion.
2: Hard hard for me to do it because there there are definitely some that I do. And even those that I do, sometimes I question, not because I don't necessarily trust them, but I don't, I don't necessarily trust their sources. Um, that's why I encourage your readers to consume news from everywhere, left to right, you know, uh, outlets that are considered, you know, liberal and conservative because you'll get closer to the truth that way. But I have to say that's one of the reasons I started the podcast on The Diplomat. I want to listen to voices from across the spectrum. I wanted to go beyond the sound bites. Um, sound bites are are terrible for people to understand the issue. You know, they get taken out of context. There's a lot more meaning to the discussion and the issues, especially on the complicated issues we face today, that go beyond the sound bites. So, one of the reasons I like this podcast, um, and one of the reasons I started my own, is you get to have a much more deep conversation about the issues of the day. Hear the voices. And I definitely would encourage people don't consume news based on the headline, the subheadline, even one article. If you're interested in whatever topic you're interested in is vaccines, COVID 19, Israeli Palestinian peace, the Abraham Accords, immigration, you name the topic. They're all hard, complex topics. You got to read up on it to get smarter and to really understand what's going on.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, for sure. And I want to turn it over to Howie Bell. About- what we could do to further some of the work that you've done in our own local little areas.
1: Yeah. I mean, so you raised a lot of issues, Jason, just now, and I think you know, we're a bipartisan organization and we do the, again, a lot of our issues are nuanced and complex and complicated. Um, and so often people don't, don't get it. And I guess the question I have is both for myself as someone who's trying to navigate between the community and, and our elected officials and policymakers, but also as advice to some of our listeners, you know, what advice do you have for for community advocates and people in the community who want to engage with elected officials and politics and 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 policymakers and influencers, it be the media or or elected officials? You know, what, what what's the best way you've seen? You can know, you came out of the private sector, you were in government, now you're back in the private sector. What what's the best way you've seen uh, to to do this that makes that makes sense?
2: So a couple of things, and some are very very difficult, especially in today's environment. My first um piece of advice is throw politics at the door. Just leave it at the door. Take off your political hat, work across the aisle. You won't agree on everything, but if I can work on Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli Arab peace and have warm, deep relationships with Arabs throughout the region and Palestinians, we Americans could figure out how to get along together, even if we disagree on fifty, sixty, ninety percent of the issues. That's fine. We gotta get in the room and talk intelligently and respectfully and figure out where we can make it work and and recognize that sometimes you can't make it work. And then you try to figure out what the solution is, but check the politics at the door. Um, The second thing is to be respectful. You know, I'm, I see so much going on today, whether it's on the news media or on Twitter, other social media where people are just disgusting to each other. What's that going to accomplish, right? It's not going to, first of all, people should be embarrassed by it. It's not how we want to raise our kids. It's not the country that, You know, the United States represents. Uh, We're not the only country with this problem. I think it's pervasive now throughout the world, but let's be better examples. Uh, Let's recognize that we don't know everything, right? We may have our preconceived notions, the way I had some preconceived notions going into the White House about the peace process. Uh, We don't know everything, and we need to learn from others, and we need to hear other points of view. And uh, I think those are sort of some of the pillars that I try to follow whatever issue that I'm working on.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, I tell people all the time, I'm a lobbyist. I'm not an activist. I get to work with anybody that wants to work with me um, on whatever issue it is. And if they're an ally in this issue, they might be an enemy on a different issue, and that's okay. So I I really appreciate what you're saying. Thank you.
0: So we, we talked a lot about some of the successes of the Abraham Accords. I want to know if you could talk about, if you're comfortable talking about some of your failures, something that you were hoping to do, but then it just fell through, or a mistake that you made, Um, that you're comfortable sharing and what you learned from it and how it maybe it even improves something down the road.
2: Well, obviously our biggest failure was the failure to get the Palestinians to the, even to the negotiating table. And I don't blame us for that. I largely blame the Palestinian leadership, the leadership in Ramallah and the terrorists in Gaza. Um, They'll of course blame us because they would say, they would give a laundry list of things, you know, Trump's policies. Favoring Israel, Trump's policies anti-Palestinian, which none of which I think is accurate. Jerusalem embassy, they have their reasons, but at the end of the day, they condemned the peace plan before we even launched the peace plan. You know, uh, I forget who it was. Um, I think their prime minister said that he hopes the peace plan will be born dead, which is a crazy statement for somebody to make on a peace plan that even if you disagree with so much of it, is designed to help you have better lives for the next generation. So I, you know. I don't think we could have done things differently because I never would have said, oh, don't recognize Jerusalem because the Palestinians will have a fit and disconnect you. That's not a reason not to recognize Jerusalem, not a reason not to be historically accurate and follow U.S. law. But um, I wish that the conversations that I had with private Palestinians and even some uh, of those in authority where it was clear to me that they are looking for something different. I wish that the leadership could have been courageous enough to slowly open the door to an eventual good faith negotiation with Israel. But the time is the time wasn't right then. It's certainly not right, not right now. And uh, I hope one day in the not too distant future, there'll be a leadership in Ramallah that will be willing to be courageous and tiptoe through that door. And um, I hope one day that, terrorist thugs that are really um, terrorizing, not just Israelis, of course, but subjugating 2 million Palestinians in Gaza, I hope they realize that they're just not going to win this war, and they're much better off disaligning from Iran, who are their puppeteers, and realizing that if they want to help the Palestinians have a better future, their kids, their grandkids, it's time to wake up and start approaching that peace door as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that sounds like that invitation will always be there. I want to ask you something that always struck me as, as one of the most complex parts of this is that I believe they're raised as a, from a very young age being fed this poison, um, the, the feelings towards Israel and the Jewish people. And, you know, stepping aside for that for a second, you know, when you hear psychologists and therapists talk about the power of childhood and how much, you know, young, Um, Children have things and experiences that happen that leave an impact for life. So now you take that and walk into this conversation. Was that ever addressed? How do we do what we want to do with them when from two, three or four years old, they've been taught and trained to think a certain way about us? Has that ever been a focus point of how you try to make peace?
2: It's a great question, but it, it sort of um, ties to some of the themes we spoke about earlier on in the conversation. What you say is true. I mean, we, many of us have seen, let's say, the video of the kin- young kindergarten girl from, the, from Gaza or, or somewhere uh, holding a machine gun and talking about killing Jews. But Palestinians are not monolithic, no different than Americans and Israelis are not monolithic. Yes, there are kids who get trained that way. What the percentages of kids that get trained that way and how much the kids actually absorb it. I don't think anybody really has the answer to it. So I want to, I don't want to deny what you're saying, but I want to refute it a little bit. When I met with, I, it was important to me to meet Israelis and Palestinians and Arabs throughout the society, meaning it wasn't enough just to see the leadership, because in order to build peace, as I've said earlier, you need to also change hearts and minds of the population. So when I met a group of young Palestinians from, not even young, all ages from Gaza for the first time when I was at the White House, There was a teacher, a woman who had cancer. And uh, by the way, this was an incredibly impressive group of Palestinians from Gaza. I was so impressed with them because they're coming from a place where there was hardly any electricity every day, water shortages and the like. In my view, all because of Hamas, not Israel. I know Israel gets blamed, but it really is Hamas's fault. But they had the most positive energy about them. And there wasn't a whisper of what you're talking about. What they do in private, I have no idea, right? I also don't have all the answers, but it was a warm, comfortable meeting, even if it was challenging in terms of the discussion. This woman had cancer. She needed cancer treatment in Israel. She wasn't getting a permit. It just so happens it was the day of my mother's yard site. And my mother had passed away, I think at the time it was uh, maybe 16 years before that. I don't remember the year. And I made sure that the minute the meeting ended, I was on the phone with the prime minister's office in Israel to get her a permit and they gave her the permit right away. Like, you know, sometimes bureaucracy, sometimes it's a security issue. She wasn't a security issue. Sometimes it's just bureaucracy. So they gave her the permit. I don't think that woman or her kids were raised to have hatred of Israel. They're upset. They may want a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital As you know, that's not words that are foreign to people, but that doesn't mean they hate Israel or hate Jews. What the percentage is, of course, is a mystery. Um, nobody really has that percentage. I didn't get a, a feel for it when I did my work, but I could tell you it's meeting people like that that gave me hope that one day maybe this could be resolved.
0: That's beautiful. Um, you're soon going to be releasing your book In the Path of Abraham. So when, when is that coming out? Did it come out already or when is it coming out? And can you give us a skinny short preview of what you're looking uh, to cover in that book?
2: Sure. Well, it's available on pre-order now on Amazon, and I hope your listeners will pre-order it. I'm very excited about it. it comes out in print uh, in June, um, but pre-order it now. <laughs> so I it's a book about who we were, what we learned, why we did what we did. It, you know, it sort of goes beyond the note cards that the diplomats have, of the demands of how to solve this because they mean nothing. It goes much deeper into it. It tries to dispel many of the myths and rumors about the conflict. Certainly about Israel, the way so many around the world attack Israel, but it also dispels some of the myths and rumors about the Palestinians as well. So I think for anybody who's interested in um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, the Abraham Accords, want to learn more about Israel and the myths about Israel around the world and the Palestinians, uh, a little bit about Trump, you know, it's not a gossip tell-all that some of the people have been writing because I just think that's thoroughly inappropriate to work in government and then come out and start you know attacking people or telling tales out of school that's not at all what this book is but if you if you love Israel, if you love peace, if you love the region, if you're fascinated by the region, I think you'll benefit
0: from reading the book now that's great and as we say in the in the uh the Mishnah and ethics of our fathers in Perkei oh hey shalom Rode Shalom to love peace and and to seek, to seek peace and pursue peace. And that, and you know, I really very much appreciate, uh, letting us know that we could pre-order it now, even if it's not out now. I'm sure it's on Amazon or it shouldn't be too hard to find. Um, my last question, I promise. <laughs> Today, as we interview you, as we are recording this, it's January 6th, 2022. And a year ago, we saw a little bit of the ugly side of when people don't know how to embrace things that they don't like. You are someone who learned to, uh, really execute in working and listening to those who don't sit on your side of the table on a practical level. We, we talked a lot about, you know, big picture, but on a practical level, can you share a best practice how we could seek peace, pursue peace and get along with those rallying around the things that we agree about and, you know, checking things at the door that we know we won't? Is there something that you could share with us that we could live more fulfilled lives and ultimately we'll live, um, we'll be setting better examples for our families, for our children um, when we have more shalom, when we have more peace in the world?
2: I think you hit the nail on the head with just setting
0: better examples.
2: When we at the supermarket with the Uber driver, whoever, we need to act the way we want our kids to act. and We need to show respect treat everybody as if they're important, um, understand where they're coming from. You know, I have, uh, on one of my projects, I was, um, being, this is in the post white house world. I had a driver, uh, from Pakistan who was uh, a driver for me for many times on the road trips that I had to take. And we had some amazing conversations together and you'd be surprised how much we had in common. now I don't know what his views, I don't think his views on Israel and mine, obviously align. But we spoke about family, we spoke about kids, we spoke about politics, we spoke about Pakistan, is uh, the Middle East generally in the U.S. Like, And my kids from time to time were in the car with me, and I think it made an impact on them to realize like you can talk to somebody who may have very different views on you, but you get along well. You have plenty of conversations that are polite and friendly and warm, even when you disagree. But I think your words of being an example are so key. I would be embarrassed myself to try to teach my kids one way of living, and then when they see me act a different way, whether it's in interviews that I do on TV or with government people or with you know a driver or when I'm ordering something at the supermarket, it's there's such a dichotomy. Sometimes I'm not saying like people don't lose their temper or get frustrated from time to time. We all do, of course. But if we make a better effort at treating everyone with respect, trying to understand the other side not being controversial every second of the day when we don't agree with everybody uh, with people, whether it's relating to COVID masking. I mean, I I saw a clip on the news the other day about a woman on a, on a flight whose mask was down shouting at somebody in this row behind her for eating without a mask. Uh, I think she attacked him physically. I mean, what is going on with our society? So the more we kind of pull back from that and show her that's not acceptable, I think, the closer we'll get to bridging the divide that our country really has today.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. And, that, and uh, what a message to share with our listeners. Uh, Jason, you are a walking, breathing Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying Hashem's name. This, uh, this show, Kolot, where we have um, different voices come on, you really exemplify the ability to hear other voices and wanna. You know, try to do what you can to make things better for everyone. So we appreciate you coming on so much. And that book will be coming out June. Maybe, uh, anyone who sends in a, uh, a lesson that they learned to Rabbi Kapenstein at the colo.org, maybe they'll get a book, uh, a free copy of, uh, we'll, we'll send them a copy. Maybe Jason, you could, you could, uh, you could autograph it for us.
2: I'd be delighted to autograph it. And, and thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for. Allowing me to share my thoughts with your audience. And, uh, I wish you guys tremendous success with this podcast.
0: Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. And then send those, send those comments in Rabbi Kapenstein at the org. What your takeaway was, maybe something that you're going to be applying to your life. It all starts at home with your family and then to your community. And let's take these lessons that Jason shared with us. So Howie, I think we covered everything. Is that about right?
1: I think so. It was a great, great conversation. Really appreciate it. I learned a lot.
0: Thank you so much. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you, Jason. Take care. Bye, bye. Wow, Howie, so uh, shared a lot of inspiring things that you know you don't pick up in the news, you don't pick up in the articles. It was great to hear a little bit of what the other side looks like.
1: Yeah, and I think you know there's more of that that happens than people realize. I think in general, but given society and Twitter and everything today, it's so hard to to see some of that. And I think to hear from someone, especially someone who was so high up in the trump administration and so tied in some of the again some of the controversial you know um complicated complex issues they were dealing with and was really you know had people on all sides yelling and screaming at them to hear someone like that be so um nuanced was really was really impressive
0: yeah i i, what I what, something that's standing out in my mind right now is at the end we said just you know setting a good example whether it's with your Uber driver, you know, with simple people, we think that, oh, I have to be respectful to the, you know, to the the people that have name ID, but he's talking about even the simple people, you know, and be consistent with them.
1: Yeah. And I think you see that all the time. You know, Jonathan Sachs has a piece where I many years when he wrote about um, people who he saw who were humble. Um, and I think, you know, one example was a, a prime minister of England. One example was I think Prince Charles and some, I forget his third example, but there was people really high up. Like, I think Prince Charles went around and thanked people. You know, uh, the security detail. One of the one of the events he was at. Um, you know, this is the volunteer security folks in the Jewish community. Um, I think a, one of the prime ministers who was at a dinner party that, that the that the chief rabbi um, hosted went into uh, that thanked the the kitchen staff for preparing the meal. You know, kind of thing. So, Yeah, it's it's a really um, I think how people how people in power treat. People who are not powerful is, 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 is a powerful lesson. Yeah,
0: that's great. Well, listen, we we hope that people in, enjoyed this, but actually, you know, somewhat of a call to action. Um, the Beis Mikdash was uh, destroyed for sinas chinam for baseless hatred, and um, hopefully, we'll be able to rectify it with more kavod, with more respect, and hopefully, there'll be something for everyone to take home and apply to their lives personally.
1: Yeah, I think, so again, I think his. What he, what he was able to do in, in the Trump administration was, you know, with, with Israel and the the Gulf region, I think is, is proof and you can, you can like like he said, you know, he can build relationships with people who are very different than him and and things can happen out of that.
0: Right. That's right. Beautiful. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, doing this with me. I, I definitely enjoyed it and uh, couldn't believe that when he gave us confirmation that he'll do it and we're like, wow, we got Jason Gravelatt. So thank you for doing it's this. with more. me. I don't think I could have done it on my own. So I appreciate that, Howie. Pleasure. Take care. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolot, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars, Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever. Be inspired.